We are people who are who are trained and have trained ourselves to drop into unknown complex environments and figure it out, um, regardless of what's going on. Um, and in the military, you call it VUCA, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, those VUCA environments. And that's what special operators do. They just, they drop into VUCA environments and figure it out. And so the, 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 the training you do uh, allows you to build competency in figuring it out, <laughs> which means when you get into life, death, thing situations, you're used to calming yourself and figuring it out. Um, and that's totally different than having a solution readily accessible because the solution is not often readily accessible and you have to be, you have to actually get comfortable with that fact. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. So welcome to episode 52. Now this is going to be our last episode for 2021 and man is it a great one to end on. My guest is Rich Devinney who is a retired Navy SEAL commander with an incredible career that included more than 13 overseas deployments as well as being the lead of the team that created the first ever Mind Gym which helped special operators train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments and especially high stress ones. Now Rich is also the author of the absolutely incredible book The Attributes, 25 hidden drivers of optimal performance. There is a ton of great stuff in this conversation. We talk about the difference between optimal and peak performance, about micro-recovery and micro-preparation versus macro-recovery and macro-preparation, and about the idea of handling everything that you can up until the point of uncertainty, the idea of preparing all the way to the edge, just to name a few of the many, many things we go over. Before we get started, a reminder, if you haven't already, to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. It's available on Amazon, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. Now, if you already have that, please consider leaving a review that really helps us get the word out and get the message out to as many people as we can. Also, consider signing up for our newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free, and it's awesome, and it's a deep dive into a lot of the concepts that we cover on the podcast and much beyond. You can find that at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this conversation. I hope you enjoy and I hope that you and yours have a healthy, happy, peaceful end to 2021 and that 2022 as it comes treats you wonderfully and well. There is a ton of cool stuff coming down the pipeline from the Emergency Mind Project, so stay tuned and keep training. All right, let's uh let's get into it. Rich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've been just really looking forward to this. I have my like well-loved and well-worn copy of your book sitting next to me, stuffed full of post-it notes and ideas. And man, thank you for thank you for joining. Well, thanks, Dan, for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here and great to be talking. So awesome. Well, all right. If you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, The Attributes, you should stop this podcast and go get it and read it because I think there's tons of deep material in there. But but maybe for folks that haven't had as much experience with your work, can you can you give us a quick overview of sort of what the attributes project is and, and what you'll what your team is all about? Yeah, I mean, I have to I have to rewind the clock a little bit. I, I mean, I spent twenty plus years as a Navy SEAL, and <clears throat> during that time, obviously, you know, I went in in ninety six. That's when I went to SEAL training, graduated college and went to SEAL training, and then um, of course five years later things got very kinetic, and um, and so was was uh well i guess i mean we we all we all consider it fortunate to be able to have done the things that we trained to do you know war is obviously not is never a good thing but um but you learn a lot and um uh, which i did but i also got to run training um not 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 basic seal training but training and assessment and selection for one of our very specialized seal commands and it was during that 
uh, process that I began to dig into this concept of, uh, of really performance. What is performance? And, um, and ultimately had to realize that performance wasn't necessarily what we thought it was. Um, the way I kind of thought about that was when we talked about training and I you know, specifically say basic seal training, which is buds, basic underwater demolition slash seal training. That's when a candidate goes to San Diego, there, uh, Coronado and, um, and they start a six month course uh of just basically hell <laughs> you know and um and it's, a, it's about a 90 percent attrition so only about 10 percent make it through and you spend um hundreds of hours running around with big heavy boats in your head and and exercising with 300 pound telephone poles and running around running around with those things on your shoulder and freezing in the surf zone and, and as i was running the training uh course i was running i recognized that uh that having done hundreds of combat missions overseas never on one did I ever carry a boat on my head or a, or a 300 pound telephone pole, right? So, <laughs> so what they were doing to us in basic SEAL training wasn't training us at all. It was basically, it was putting us into environments, into situations that teased out these innate qualities. They weren't training us in the, in necessarily the skills to be Navy SEALs. They were teasing out these qualities. And, and in running the training course I was running, I was trying to better articulate why guys weren't making it through our selective selection process. And just to give you a break, give you a kind of break it down for you. Basic SEAL training is the one I just described. The, the selection process I was running took some of the most experienced um, guys into our program and put them through our own nine-month uh, selection and training course, and we still got about 50% attrition. So 50% mm -hmm. of these top dudes weren't making it through. And again, that's every every selection process. That's the that's the point, right? But the, the, the problem was we couldn't articulate why. And that's when I began to have to recognize I had to break performance down into these two factors, skills versus attributes. Um, and so, and I know this is a long answer, but I guess it, I guess it, it just sets everything up, right? But, but skills are in fact, um, not inherent to our nature. All right. We're not born with the ability to throw a ball or ride a bike or in a seal case, shoot a gun. And we're, we, we, we train to do those things. We're taught to do those things and skills also direct our behavior in known specific environments. So here's how and when to throw a ball or ride a bike or shoot a gun or in the in the medical case, you know, uh, you know, stitch someone up. I mean, whatever those skills are, um, mm -hmm. you train to do those things. And because they're uh, they're visible and didactic, right, they're very easy to see and therefore easy to assess, measure and test. You can score them. You can put stats around them. You can you can uh, you can very tangibly see how well anybody does any one of those things. Uh, which is why when we're putting together teams, oftentimes, or we're assessing, selecting people, we get seduced by skill. Um, this is the dream team paradox, right? We pick the best person, this best person, that. What skills don't tell us, of course, is how we are going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. And that's when we lean on these attributes, these innate, inherent qualities. Attributes are inherent. We're all born with levels of patience and situational awareness and adaptability. Now, we certainly develop those, we can develop them over time and experience and things like that, but, but we can see levels of this stuff in small children. So they're inherent to our nature. Um, they don't direct our behavior, they inform our behavior. They tell us how we're gonna show up to a situation. So my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed how he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. Um, and then because they're hidden in the background, they're hard to see, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You can't, you can't put scores around them or stats around them. And you can't sit across the table in an interview process, for example, and, and assess how adaptable someone is or how resilient they are um, or how patient. And so 
And so these things show up the most viscerally and visibly during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress, because when skills can't be applied, we start to lean on these attributes. And so what I realized coming out of the Navy is that I would talk to businesses and organizations and they they were saying, hey, we're putting together the dream teams, but they're not working out, right? Everything's going great when things are going great, but when things go sideways, the the, te the teams turn toxic. And I, it was really easy for me to tell them, hey, it's because you're, you're picking your team based on the wrong things. You're picking your team based on skills uh, versus these attributes. And so in the medical community, you can really kind of start to think about this and and internalize it because we know there's there could be someone who has all the right skills to do the surgery that that's required, but how are they when the um, whenever when things start to fail, when things don't go as planned? Are they able to actually perform? You know, when when skills when you don't necessarily have a skill to address the current situation. You know, do you, do you have the adaptability? Do you have the resilience? And so, so I figured, you know, no one was writing it. I, I said, well, I said to myself, someone should write a book on this, and so <laughs> I did. <laughs> and so that's what we do now. The attributes book talks about the twenty five attributes of optimal performance, which I know we're going to get into, and. Um, and, you know, other than aside from giving keynotes and speeches, we're actually starting to work with organizations and businesses who want to figure out what are those attributes that they need to look for, for their teams, for their personnel, for their hires, and start doing the job of picking their, uh, picking their teams um, more responsibly and, and in a way that's better prepared for uncertainty that we know is guaranteed. I love that so much. And this is in in no small part why I've been so excited to sit down and have this conversation with you, because there's just so much overlap between what you're describing and the way that we work as we sort of like try to apply knowledge under uncertainty and pressure in the middle of an emergency. And, you know, an interesting facet of this, and I wonder if this is a fun jumping off point is, you know, when we start training the next group of uh, sort of the next generation of ER doctors. So you just go through medical school and you have like really, really ultra basic stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you come on and you start working a couple of cases and, you know, we put you in uh, a structure, which when it works properly obeys the rule of graduated responsibility, where you're always pushed sort of just to the edge of where you're capable of doing it. And mm -hmm. then we teach you skills just in time and train you and train you on sim sessions and sort of try to build up the skills, but almost by definition, like, you know, and this is actually something that um, uh, Preston Klein and the folks at the Mission Critical Team Institute talk about is like the day one problem, right? Like, yeah. like the first day you're out there, you do not have the skills. Maybe you've done it on a simulator. Um, and, and ultimately, that's something that lasts with us throughout emergency medicine. Because even after you graduate from residency, you go out into practice. There are still things that I do that it's the first time I'm ever doing them. Yeah. And, and I've, maybe I've thought about the skill, I've trained the skill, but I've never had to reach in that part of the toolkit to really pull it out and deploy it. Because there's all these sort of just weird, rare things that happen. But what I love about it is that in order to answer that problem that all of us have to face, you can come to it with a really different set of attributes that get you there. There's not like one, there's not like one way to do it. Certainly some right. attributes in the way you're describing innate character traits have more or less uh, efficacy in the settings that we're both sort of talking about, but you can get there from any number of different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's really like, like a really inspiring way to look at this is to think through, okay, well, what are my, what are the personal deck of cards that I'm, that I come stocked with? How right. am I going to recognize those? How am I going to use them? And then on the flip side of it, as a trainer, how can I identify the deck of cards? One of my incoming people is playing with yes. and help them understand how to strengthen that and use with that set of cards, these skills in this situation. And yeah, it's just such a fascinatingly different way to think about it than we than we normally approach it with, which is really just a skills-based sort of session. 
Well, um, I would say, uh, by the way, Preston is such a great guy. He and I had many conversations while I was actually doing this, and I was still mm -hmm. in this training environment because he was working on his stuff. And man, what a great, smart dude! Absolutely. Um, and uh, and one of the things I remember us talking about, which you'll which you will um, uh, resonate, which will resonate with you and the audience, is the fact that we in the in the in the military profession, in the medical profession, there's there's an element there that's inherent to our jobs that is very difficult, if not impossible, to replicate in training, and that is the life and death equation, right? Mm -hmm. um, because because the 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 life and death equation adds a level of stress that is almost unreplicable because because in a simulator you know you're in a simulator right and so there's no way to appropriately or accurately replicate that level of stress um, and so you have to look for other ways to exercise the stress challenge and uncertainty muscles and and really effectively begin to to create a competency in 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 uncertainty and so i used mm -hmm. to you know people used to ask me what seals were and what you know what the what the strength of seals were and I, and and i and i used to say then and i still say to this day it's not what people think is in the hollywood movies and, and tv and books and stuff in terms of the sh the kid door kicking you know precision shooter precision skydiver it's we are masters of uncertainty we are people who are who are trained and have trained ourselves to drop into unknown complex environments and figure it out um, regardless of what's going on. Um, and in the military, you call it VUCA, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, those VUCA environments. And um, that's what special operators do. They just, they drop into VUCA environments and figure it out. And so the, 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 the training you do uh, allows you to build competency in figuring it out, <laughs> which means when you get into life, death, think situations, you're used to calming yourself and figuring it out. Um, and that's totally different than having a solution readily accessible because the solution is not often readily accessible and you have to be, you have to actually get comfortable with that fact, um, which is interesting. It's sort of the paradox of it, right? That like, like you're trying to train yourself for something that by definition will be beyond or different than anything that you've seen. And, yeah. and you're trying to understand a way that you can prepare for something that you don't know what it is, mm -hmm. that you have some ideas of maybe some of the guidelines about it, although those guidelines break and change all the time, right? I mean, I, I, this is a, a small and simple example, but you know, I remember in the back in the pre-COVID days, uh, you know, actually talking to some of my team about the fact that okay, well, you know, if the pulse oximeter reads less than whatever percent, then you know it's not working, so you have to change your mental model. Now, of course, that happens like every day. Somebody comes in and the pulse oximeter reads something because the actual landscape we're practicing in changes all the time. So yeah. how, do you, how do you continue to, you know, to sort of ride that wave of uncertainty and get better and better at doing that? And how do you do that at all stages of your career? Because I, I would guess the problem is structurally similar in that whether I'm an ER doctor on my first day or an ER doctor in my one millionth day, it's probably not the right number, but whatever, I'm still <laughs> yeah. facing situations I've never seen before. Right, right, and and um, and complex versus complicated environments. Right, this is where this is where the the principle really starts to 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 get into play. I mean, com a complicated an example of a complicated system would be um, an F one, like I talk about in the book, an F one race car. Right, uh, made up of thousands of parts. Okay, but but everything about that system is predictable. Um, I mean, down to the decimal point, the people who drive those cars and and design those cars know exactly how that engine that car is going to perform in 
exactly the environments they perform. That's an example of complicated system, predictable, but complicated. But we, but complex means it's probably made up of several million or billions of parts, but it's not predictable at all, right? This is where we get into uh, war. This is where we get into the human body. The human body is, um, is adaptable, it changes. One human body is not necessarily the same as another human body. Sure, there's similarities that you can count upon, but, but, um, but you know, the way one body responds to something may not be the way that another body responds to another, which throws you into an automatically complex environment. And complexity can only be navigated by a, a process that one implements and executes uh, as they're walking through it versus I'm just going to have the answer at the at the ready because the answer might be different. The the same thing that happens to you on the surgical table one day, uh, well, I should put it this way: something can happen to you on a surgical table one day that you address. The same thing can happen the next day or two days later, and you have to address it in a totally different way because the because the environment is complex, not uh, not complicated. Hmm. All right, so so that's worth pressing on for a second. So let, let's break that down, and maybe we can wrap into that another thing that we talk about. Uh, sort of a lot in the podcast, the idea of like kind versus unkind learning environments, because I think mm -hmm. these things are pretty intimately linked with each other. So a complicated system or a complicated environment has a large number of parts, but overall can be predicted to a fairly high, if not perfect degree yeah. versus a complex system, which is has such a thread of uncertainty and uh, sort of probabilistic things in it uh, and randomness almost that there is not a really a real way to actually predict what's going to happen to it. That's exactly right. That's exactly okay. Right. And that and, and the example would be life versus a machine. <laughs> <laughs> and the example would be life. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I think this gets into Okay, so so let's take one step back. So the the system that we try to usually apply here in the emergency mind is this is this cycle of uh, prepare, perform, evaluate. Excuse me, prepare, perform, recover, and evolve. Right. Mm -hmm. This is our sort of cycle that we go through as we're as we're performing under pressure. Right. And yeah. a lot of that is how do we train people? What do we do in the moments? How do we come out of that moment into the rest of our life? And then how do we look back, learn and spin the cycle better the second time? Yeah. And I, I think that as we're getting into some of these things, what we're what we're describing is this idea that part of preparation and evolution, as you think about those two pieces of the cycle, is understanding your own relationship with uncertainty and change and these complex environments. That's Am right. I getting that? Am I getting that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I would also say part, part of preparation is to identify that which is predictable and prepare mm -hmm. for it so that um, you're, you're buying down the uncertainty automatically, right? So, um, so we used to, we used to, you know, talk about shoot, move and communicate, right? So we, we prepare ourselves so we understand how to utilize our weapons and our comms and whatever without even looking at them, okay? So, we're, so we, take, we take a level of predictability and certainty and, and, and apply it to our situation so that when we get it, and the, the example, I guess, in the medical field would be, there's, a, there's a, a list of things that I understand about this particular surgery I'm gonna go do that I know, I understand that, which means I don't have to necessarily think about those solutions. When this happens, this I do this, because there's a level of predictability, uh, predictability in all of this. So that um, when something unpredictable happens, it's it's not overwhelming. You, you've, you've prepared all the way up to the edge, right? A good example of this is skydiving. Um, 
we always joke skydiving is like uh like committing suicide and saving your life every time right you're like, jumping out of an airplane um and what you do is you train to do this and you train in uh you train in the parachute you understand the parachute system you understand all the different malfunctions that could happen that we've that we've seen happen you understand how to what some techniques are to get out of those um and you you practice those and you basically memorize those and you get those all ready and then you walk up to the edge of that ramp and you understand that once i jump off this ramp i don't know what's going to happen right i'm 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 as prepared as i can be this is the 80 20 rule 80 percent 20 i'm as prepared as i can possibly be but 20 percent of this is completely unknown and i'm comfortable with that right um so i think that's part of the preparation process and is that does that get us back in a sense to attributes right because you're saying the things you learn like understanding the different failures and responses of a parachute understanding the way that that you know falling mechanics works are skills in some sense you can teach them you can train them you can test them but what it takes to jump and mid air reorient yourself to everything that's that's an attribute that's attributes, but what people have to understand about attributes is attributes uh, are are woven into the fabric of every part of our behavior, whether whether it's skills or or whether it's predictability or unpredictability. Our attributes inform the way we learn skills too. Um, so our attributes are. That's why I'm so interested in attributes because they're so elemental. Um, when I think about you know, I'm kind of fascinated with this thing I'll call elemental human performance. What causes us to behave the way we behave? Um, the reason why I talk about stress, challenge, uncertainty, and the unknown uh, so much is because that's when the attributes are the most visible and visceral. Because there are no skills, right? Um, but I mean, I mean, listen. If you are a an inherently impatient person, okay, learning to play golf is going to be difficult. Okay, learning the skill of playing golf is going to be difficult. Um, same thing I would imagine in some some of the surgical fields as well, right? So, so our attributes inform every part of behavior, which is why. It was really cool for me to dig it up as one of these facets that people kind of know but never talk about. Um, uh, but most certainly, they are the most visible and visceral. We're leaning on them almost exclusively in those environments where we don't know what skill to apply. There's no, we've never been there, so we're not. We're, we have to figure it out before we apply a skill. Hmm. So, so where do they come from? Where do attributes come from? Well, that's a great question. Probably one more for psychologists than us, but uh, but I think I've talked in, in the psychologists I've talked to and the neuroscientists I've talked to. Um, I think it's agreed upon that they're both nature and nurture. There and there's there's part of the genome that uh, allows us. I mean, uh, you know, if if we have patient parents, we might inherit. I, I inherited my dad's patience, right? I mean, he's a patient dude, um, and so there's a part of the genome that we we inherit. Um, but then there's also environments, right? So the the, the the military call it the military brat the the kid who grows up in a military family and has to move a dozen times before high school right um is going to be forced to be adaptable is going to be forced to practice their his or her adaptability in in that in in moving and changing schools so often now the the so there's a couple things that could happen there that 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 child could have a natural um, high level of adaptability. So as that child moves through all those different changes, it's fairly easy for them and they, they hyper develop that adaptability skill or the child might have a low level adaptability. So those moves might be really tough, right? And it doesn't mean they're not developing their adaptability. They're, they're actually becoming more adaptable, but it's tough. They start, they start, they started at a low level. So it's tough the whole time. So, so environment matters as well, but, um, but we are, uh, we, we do show up we do show up with some of this stuff. I mean, any of us with kids know that there are some there are some toddlers who are just inherently patient, and there are some toddlers who are inherently impatient, right? So, so they do show up.
Hmm. And what uh, this might veer, I guess we could answer this either as like a human development or as a uh, more adult team member development sort of question. But like, when, when do you see people start to like become aware of some of these attributes? Like, is it really only yeah. in these really, uh, you know, VUCA environments? Is it really only in these like high stress moments or do you see them start to become aware of it sooner? I don't, I, I, I found that most people aren't necessarily aware of them at all. Uh, this is why I wanted to write about them because I think it was, it was to make someone aware of them allows someone to begin deconstructing their own behavior. Um, here's a, I, I would say anybody, anybody who's listening to this and can tell a story uh, from their lives that ends with the phrase, I didn't know I had it in me, um, is, a, is a story of an attribute coming to the fore that, they, that they're, they're recognizing. You know? but, so, so it's these, it's, these, um, it's these environments of stress challenge and uncertainty that really kind of forge those into our, into our consciousness. And again, I mean, again, the neuroscientists will tell you that the, the, when we, in the act of learning, when we're, when we're, we're you know, creating these neural networks, the, the three factors that add to the deepest, most intense learning are uh, intensity, novelty, and focus those three things if you have all three three of those things you actually the, the learning the neural networks forge faster you, and you're myelinating those those uh those networks much faster this is why when we add music to a alphabet we remember it forever this is why when we touch a hot stove versus being told it's a hot stove we mm -hmm. remember it um so so guess what provides us in life intensity novelty and focus challenge uncertainty and stress i mean you know so we're going to learn a lot more in those times just by the nature of the neurochemicals that those situations, those environments are pro providing us. So another great example is just learning a language. We can sit in Spanish class, you know, from grade school through high school through college and come out of that. And, and I know a little bit of Spanish and I can, you know, order a taco or something, but, but it's not until you're immersed in that environment where now you're hungry and you need something or you're lonely or whatever, the, the environment provides a stress where people, the immersion training matters. And it's because the environment is now giving us that pressure and, mm -hmm. and generating a, a huge cascade of these, uh, these neurochemicals, neurotransmitters and or hormones that are solidifying these neural networks. It's, uh, it's really cool. It's why experience, it's why doing the deed uh, is so important. And, and that's such an interesting mashup between what you said earlier, which is that sort of by definition, you can't actually create the right sim or the right training circumstances to fully mirror what you're going to have to go through. Right? No, you so can't. You can, yeah. yeah. But, but, the, but this is where, this is where breaking down the attributes helps, right? Because if you can break down the attributes, then you can take the attributes piece by piece. So, um, so a, uh, a life or death situation in the, in this, in the ER or, uh, in combat may require uh, adaptability, resiliency, courage, uh, and it may require task switching, and it may require situational awareness, and, and a whole host of them. Well, if I if I know that now, I can pick now I can start picking environments that at least tease and test a couple of those. I might not have an environment that teases all of them all at once, but I can at least train to a few of them, right? I can train, you know, okay, adaptability and perseverance. Well, certainly I can create environments that do that, right? SEAL training is all about adaptability and perseverance and resilience and, and, um, and courage. Well, certainly I can do that. I'm making, you know, making a guy like me who doesn't like heights jump out of airplanes. Well, that's, I'm practicing my courage every time I do it, right? So, so I think the deconstruction process is, is crucial and very helpful in allowing us to practice 
these things um, so that when the whole combo hits us, we're at least a little bit more prepared. So how do I do that, right? Let's say I want to, let's say I'm going into work tomorrow and I'm working with my team of residents and I want to get, help them get better at the most critical resuscitations we have, which are, which are these very high stress, high uncertainty moments. How do I take one of those cases and deconstruct it backwards to identify the attributes that are, that are inherent in it, that are needed for it? Well, the, the process involves asking questions and, and asking questions with, with a group of people who understand the context of what you're talking about, right? So, and, and the questions are pretty simple. What attributes are required? And you look, you look at the list. And so, this, so what I did when I was running the training I was running was I got together groups of, of SEALs uh, around from different parts of the command that I was at and, and, and independently just said, hey, just give me, just take 10 minutes and give me a list of the attributes you think make up a great make up a great seal operator in this environment, the rational. And I got these lists together and then, and inherently what's going to happen is they're going to be fairly similar. There's going to be a lot of the same words on there. It makes it easy because they're like, oh, that's obvious a thing. Um, and then there'd be synonyms in there. So you just call it out, uh, but you, you generate a list. This is the, these are the attributes. And, um, and you, in that process, neck it down to the core ones. And I don't know what that core number would be. I mean, um, I would I would imagine it's probably no more than th three or five core attributes, you know, maybe even less. That it may, you may even neck it down to one. Hey, if this if if a person has this, then they will be fine, right? It's typically not one, but at least two or three, um, and then start creating environments that test and tease that, you know. And and the cool thing is you can get creative on this. You don't you, you can it doesn't have to be that specific environment. It should be somewhat contextual, all right. But uh, because you know, for example, I. I'm not going to, if I want to figure out how, um, uh, how, uh, how perseverant, uh, a, a group of accountants are. Okay. Um, taking them to the surf zone in, in Coronado, California and throwing them to the freezing water, like they do Navy SEALs. is not going to tell me much about how that maps onto their context. Right. So, so I'd have to find something that maps onto the accounting context with regard to perseverance, right? So, so the, the context matters, um, but that's basically how you do it. There's a lot of introspection and, and it's, it, it's actually kind of a fun process once you get moving with it, because you start really saying, oh, wait a second. Okay, now I see this. Interesting enough, it can be very self-reflective too, because um, you say, okay, wait a second. Now I know why, I'm, why, why this stuff gives me trouble because I'm, I, I'm low on this one or why this stuff's so easy for me because I'm high on this one. And that's kind of fun too. There's definitely experience when you when you read your book of going through the different stories and the different attributes and and finding mirrors of yourself in some of them and in other ones being like wow I've never felt that before I really need to need yeah. to dig in and think a little bit more about that piece of it for sure yeah yeah um, I, I want to shift us just slightly towards another concept that's really linked to this as you think about designing systems to train attributes uh, which is this idea of the difference between optimal and peak performance mm -hmm. what is what's that about what's optimal performance versus peak performance yeah it's um the difference is is longevity <laughs> if I were to define it in one word and again the, the reason is because peak is an apex that's all it is and 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 when you're at an apex the only place there's only one place you can go and that's down all right. And so everybody's in nowadays trying to chase peak performance, this, you know, they want to kind of peak all the time, be at peak, all peaks, the kind of the buzzword. Um, but the fact is, uh, you to, to really play the long game, you need to think optimally, you need to think about optimal performance, optimal performance is really 
Um, how can I do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in this moment, okay? So sometimes in that moment, the best looks like peak and everything's clicking and you're in flow states and everything's going great. Well, sometimes also the best in, the, in that moment is I am gutting it out, grinding it out, and I, all I have is like head down step by step, right? Um, and so, um, and, and that's still optimal. You're, you're doing the best you can. And, and so SEAL training is, is very um, uh, exemplified exemplary of this, I guess, uh, are a good example, I guess is a better way to say it, um, because they put you in these just atrociously horrible, gut-wrenching uh, environments. I mean, hell week alone is five, was uh, six days where you sleep for two hours. That's it. You know, and you're doing just things all week and you're just, you know, they get the most number of quitters there. And there are times in hell week, most of the time, by the way, where you're just like, all I got, I, I can, all I can think about right now is just taking the next step or going the next minute, or going to the next meal. You know, you're just going step by step. You are performing optimally. Um, and so the idea of optimal performance allows us to do two things. It allows us to A, modulate our energy, right? In other words, I don't have to be peaking when I'm going to the grocery store, okay? So I can understand where I need to peak. I can actually peak on demand more effectively and more often, because I know when I peak, I need to pull back. So if I know in this moment, I need to take it to an eight or nine, Cool, I go eight or nine, but as soon as that moment's over, now I'm gonna dial it back to a two or three, because now I know I need to recover, okay? Optimal performance allows us that, that leeway, allows us that ebb and flow of energy. Um, and then it also allows us to celebrate um, when, uh, when we gut it out, you know? I mean, you know, yeah, you know, I remember sometimes we'd, we'd finish missions and we're like, man, that was ugly, that mission, right? But we got it done, you know? That's cool, right, we got it done. I mean, sometimes, Sometimes life requires just gutting it out. I mean, all of us in 2020, you know, none of us were, were performing at our peak on day one of quarantine. We were all doing the best we could. And, and for all of us, it wasn't that pretty, you know, but we did it. We just took step by step. And so, and so, you know, in the medical field, I mean, cancer survivors are, are people who are really dialed into this. And they'll talk about chemotherapy in those days where it's like they say, all, you know, uh, during chemotherapy, all I wanted to do was just get to the end of that session. That's all. I just, I just focused on getting to the end of that session, right? Well, guess what they were doing? They were performing optimally. And when they got to that end, then they said, okay, what's my next goal, right? And they can pat themselves on the back and they can celebrate because at that moment they were performing optimally. So optimal performance allows us to play the long game um, because we don't know. And that's life. Life is a long game. You don't know how long a mission is going to take. So you don't go all out when you start. You don't know how long a surgery is going to take. So you don't go all out when you start. You pace yourself. It's all about pacing. And sometimes pacing means I'm sprinting at this moment. And sometimes pacing means I'm actually walking in this moment so I can recover and rest for possibly a next sprint. Hmm. And th there's so much richness in that, in that idea and such depth in that sort of switch away from, from what you're looking at. I mean, I think that that, what you're saying about valuing recovery and performance as sides of a coin is something that we as emergency providers are only barely scratching the surface mm. of trying to understand Right. And there's this, you know, there's this hero myth of like, you get out there and you're like, you know, putting tubes and everything and sort of going crazy at all of it. And, and then there's not always the focus. I have not always had the focus on the second piece of that, which is okay. Now you need to eat and drink things and go to the bathroom and like yeah. breathe because yeah. you do not know what's going to happen next. And you do not know if there's going to be another experience like that in the next couple of seconds. Well, if right? it makes you, you feel know, any better, SEALs are the same way. Uh, yeah. are the, the, what you find <laughs> most in the SEAL teams are, and this is what happens with you when you have kind of hyper performers, is you get, you get, you get kind of 
you get kind of uh, drawn in to the success piece of it, to, to, the, to the accomplishment of the act. And so once you're done, you're like, oh, awesome. Okay, what's the next act, right? Um, we just drive, drive, drive. And our youth lets us get away with that <laughs> for a while, right? Um, it's only when we start aging, we're like, oh, wait a second, maybe I beat myself up too much. But, but ultimately, yeah, if we understand, um, I mean, listen, none of us, I mean, we all know this intuitively, like none of us go to the gym every day and only lift biceps every day, mm -hmm. right? Because if we did that, our biceps would just entropy to the, to, I mean, they, they'd get destroyed. We lift biceps, we tear that muscle, and then we wait three or four days before we lift biceps again so that muscle can grow. This is hormesis, right, in action. Um, you allow that recovery. And oftentimes the recovery has to be double, triple, even maybe quadruple in time frame of what the actual act was, right? You lift biceps for 30 minutes and then you rest for three days, right? So, um, so we just have to re remember recovery is a huge part in that growth process to not do so um, is we're going to entropy as human beings and, and, and hyper performers need to understand that. I, um, I spoke recently, uh, on the podcast to a woman named Kristen Allen, who was a international, just world champion, uh, gold medalist in gymnastics. And we spoke about a bunch of things. She's an incredible high performer, a real, uh, scientist and sort of explorer of herself at the same time. And one of the things we were talking about is that is her sort of setup and her system for peaking at certain moments in time, right? Mm -hmm. Like she, she has the luxury of having, uh, a fairly high degree of knowledge about how her challenge is going to look when and where and what the circumstance is. And so was able to really dial into that peak moment, sort of as we're describing, whereas the, the other side of the universe, what you and I are inhabiting and talking about doesn't have that luxury. We don't get the, the moment of notice. We don't get a lot of the details about where we're going to supposed to deliver our, our, our skill. Right. And so one of the things that I love about this idea of optimal performance is it changes what a win looks like in that sense, right? Like winning is also being ready within a certain frame of space and time, even if you don't actually hit one of those moments. And, and I think one of the things I've done differently after reading your book is really reflect on that idea of, of how am I judging myself over the course of a shift? Am I paying enough attention to the idea of optimally performing over the whole time or even though I know this to be true, am I still only focusing on these couple of peak moments? Right, right, yeah, yeah. And you start to and you start to understand where you can get those. It's get those breaks. I mean, it's literally like if you think of yourself as a battery and plugging yourself in when you have those moments. And when you understand this, uh, you find moments wherever you can. And I it used to, it, you know, people are gonna feel they're gonna get they're gonna be surprised about this, but we used to be inbound, like flying in the helicopter on the way to a mission, right? And some guys would be sleeping, right? Um, other guys would just be listening to music. Other guys would be whatever. But but it's because every guy understood. No one was, you know, all the. <laughs> sometimes you see, and it's fun to watch. You know, to be honest with you, but you see football teams right as as they're getting ready to go out and start the game. They're like all fired up. I mean, they're getting all pumped up, and that's fun to it's fun to watch, and it's very useful in their in their endeavor. Uh, Navy SEALs would never do that, right? Because you're spending way too much energy, right? You're calm, right? You're 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 grabbing your energy where you can in those moments because you you want to make sure you're you you chart you're you're as charged up as you possibly can be so that when it's needed you have it right um and so we used to we used to do that i and and even in the other work i was doing with the with the uh, command i was at i was we, we we started creating this what we call the mind gym you know the idea that we we wanted to help 
help guys train their brains to do better. And, and part of the concept of the mind gym was centered around this idea is how could we, how could we figure out ways to uh, recover and do, to, you know, so, and even micro recover, like, you know, I, I kind of call it recover in between gunfights. Like what are those processes? How could we understand our physiology in a way that we could micro recover? So all we have is like two minutes or, or five minutes and, and I have a moment and I can breathe in a way, or I can use my visual tools in a way that shifts me from sympathetic to parasympathetic, charges myself up, creates some DHEA, plugs my system in a little bit so that when I have to go back into the red sympathetic, I, I, I have, I have some, I've charged up a little bit and that's, I mean, we can do this. We have more control over our physiology than we think. Wow. Let's, let's press on that, man, because I, I think, you know, our, our version of that story is, you know, you get the call that there's a, a trauma gunshot wound in the box incoming in three minutes mm-hmm. and it takes you a minute to set up the room and then you're there and everybody's there. And I have yet to see anybody fall asleep in that moment, but uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll try. Two that. minutes might two minutes might be too too yeah. too short a period to fall asleep. So, but it is the most relaxed, joking, like sort of like peaceful space that you have is those like one or two minutes before the really sick trauma arrives. Yeah, it, I think in large part because we're doing, uh, you know, either naively or inherently, sort of what you're describing, which is that we're yeah. soaking up that goodness in prep. You know, we're we're readying the rubber band, the stretch kind of thing. Oh, um, totally. Yeah. And you mentioned humor. I mean, you, you, yeah. you're, you're joking and, and, and humor. And I, I talk about humor in the book, but humor and laughing is such a powerful tool neurobiologically, right? I mean, when we laugh, which is, again, is involuntary. It's like sneezing. We are immediately juiced with dopamine, uh, endorphins, which are two neurotransmitters, and then oxytocin. And so those three chemicals are f- so powerful in the, in the performance process, right? Dopamine says, hey, this is great. Keep doing it. Endorphins say, hey, I'm not, I don't have any pain. It's masking my pain. And then, and then oxytocin, Hey, we're in this together. It's that bonding chemical. Laughter is huge. It's why I kind of, I always advocate for the class clown, but I mean, you know, people ask me what I miss most about the teams, the SEAL teams. It's, it's, it's laughing. It's like those times we were surrounded by misery and we were laughing until we were crying. Cause it was just, we were finding the funny everywhere. Um, that's what's happening there. We're, we're dialing into that. And that's why you all do what you do so well, because people who can't do that, they will, they will get crushed before yeah. before they even have to you know do the act. Right. The other the other option is just death, basically. Yeah. 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 But there's something so hard to describe about about why it is why you can laugh and laugh so deeply and with such real joy about you know getting sprayed with blood or what, whatever it is, whatever that weird dark moment yeah. is, like yeah. in between things like that. Like how can you explain to uh, anybody that doesn't do some version of that, like why that's why that's the most positive thing or one of the most positive things that you can come up with. It's quite um, literally performance hacking. That's what it is. Mm. And it's, it's performance hacking on a neurobiological level, which is, which is the best, right? Mm. Um, and it's why people, it's hard to understand when you're not in it um, because I've been guilty, especially as I, well, certainly when I was in, you know, I'd be with my wife in a social setting, which was not a team guy setting. And I'd laugh at something or make a joke about something. And she'd be like, that is completely inappropriate. I was like, oh, shoot. Yes, you're right. In this environment, it is. <laughs> but you're, but you're guilty about you're guilty of just doing this because it's a defense mm-hmm. mechanism. It's what sure. we use to keep going. Um, no, I've never experienced any high performing team, truly high performing team that hasn't had a class clown one, someone who makes people laugh, but be the ability to laugh when times are tough, right? That's, it's huge. It's huge. Ah, I love it. What, how about those moments in between, right? So, so let's say this, you know, this guy comes into the gunshot and he's, 
you know, we patch him up, we get him stabilized, uh, put a chest tube in and okay, we're fine. He's going to, he's going to wait. He's going to go to surgery, but maybe not for a day or two. Like we've, you know, we're out of the big window mm-hmm. and there's while that's happening, you know, charge comes up and says, Hey, there's another incoming ETA five minutes. You got a motorcycle versus a car, pretty hypotensive looks pretty bad. Yeah. You know, Okay. So, you know, you have some information, which is that anywhere between zero and five minutes, you're going to get this other case. Mm-hmm. What, what does that look like? What have you guys found that works well in that, in that moment, that micro recharge as you're describing it? Well, it, it, it comes down to a shift in your, in your nervous system, right? Going from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And I know I'm talking to a, <laughs> an audience of, of medical folks. So, so I'm going to talk like I, I stayed at the Holiday Inn Express last night um, and, uh, and say that, you know, in the, when we're in a sympathetic uh, system, right? We are producing things like cortisol and, and action chemicals. We are, we are, um, we are putting wear on our system. We are wearing and tearing our system. Okay. Parasympathetic, obviously designed to rest and relax, rest and digest. Okay. And so, so shifting from one to the other is in fact, the way we actually recover. If we can more, more, um, proactively and directive uh, and directly shift from sympathetic to parasympathetic, in a moment, we are we shift our physiology. We're starting to create things like DHEA and and kind of the the the, the rebuilding chemicals. Okay, the emotions have a lot to do with this. The way we feel has a lot to do with this. Emotions such as joy, peace, contentment, um, uh, exuberance. Those are actually parasympathetic kind of positive end um, chemicals or, or, or emotions that that generate those chemicals. Um, and whereas anger, frustration, stress uh, is is the negative stuff. The idea would be breathing. I mean, breathing shifts us. Okay, uh, HRV breathing is is one way people do. I mean, there's Wim Hof breathing, but Wim Hof people do, don't understand that Wim Hof is actually designed to get you into sympathetic, not parasympathetic, right? So it's, it's designed to get you fired up, not relaxed. So um, so CO two blowout breathing when you're blowing out CO two from your system uh, that helps shift you. Um, there's visual tools like uh, you know when we're when we're when we're stressed we're, we're we have focus like we, we we focus in on the threat tunnel vision right so open gaze is a is a codified scientific technique to shift your system to begin shifting your system into parasympathetic open gaze is just you're 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 looking out maybe on a straight ahead but you're noticing your peripheries right it's almost like looking at a horizon this by the way is why being on a beach and looking at a horizon is so relaxing or being on a mountain and seeing a horizon is so relaxing uh, because you're automatically in open gaze all right so visual tools breathing tools um, visualization is a tool that uh, that can be actively used we all know that the brain um, can be tricked into thinking it's in an environment just by active visualization right in other words your body will begin to generate the chemicals from an environment that you're visualizing effectively. Um, you know, I used to do this with my, you know, my kids who are, they're now 16 and 14, but when they're, when they're little, they used to, you know, they used to take naps, like laying on my stomach. One of the best things you can do as a parent, I mean, just have your kid take a nap like that. And I remember feeling that and the way it felt, I mean, just hugely positive in the chemicals it's creating. So I used to visualize that and really feel it, right? That and I'd get and I'd get juiced with those chemicals, right? So so active visualization, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, it doesn't have to be kids. It can be any any activity that brings you joy, right? Um, and peace and contentment um, is effectively a recovery activity. And if you are able to even visualize that activity for, if you have a two minute stint, 
um, you will begin to produce some of those same chemicals, right? So, so we can take charge of this uh, physiologically in those micro recovery moments. And again, we have to understand micro recovery. All you're doing is you're, it's like plugging in your, your, your cell phone before you get on the airplane, right? Just to get a quick charge. So you hopefully you won't run out <laughs> during the flight, right? You're not, you're not recovering, recovering, but you're just, you're basically, you're getting that uh, a, a juice of gas. So you just have a little extra before the next thing hits. Uh, ultimately, the primary, most important uh, way to recover for any, for every human being on this planet is effective sleep. That's what's nature's design. Uh, sleeping effectively and getting a good quality sleep is the number one way to recover, to grow brain, to 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 forge those neural networks, to forge our learning, and to to re recharge our system. Yeah, I think that's so important to say that this does not. None of these things we're talking about replaces actually processing what happens in your life, thinking it through, working it out with your, with your teammates and your family and sleeping right. <laughs> and, and yeah. covering yourself on those longer scales. Those there's, the, there's this sense of like the periodicity of it, right? There's the long period sort of swells of deep recovery. And then we're talking about superimposed on top of that, the high frequency frequency, not periodicity, but the, the high frequency sort of micro recoveries and micro movements that we're talking about on top of that deeper, totally. more important foundation. Yeah. The, the other thing that's so, I think so important about what you just said is that none of those things you just listed work if you just try to do them when you're already nearly dead at the red line of stuff, right? right. Like for that breathing, for that visualization to really work, you got to put that into play days beforehand, weeks beforehand, you got to practice that under conditions of graduating pressure till you yeah. feel comfortable at deploying it in that moment between things. Now, yeah. if all you get to that moment, give it a shot. But what's really going to make the difference, I think, is really practicing that piece of it. And so I think that's something that we could be doing better is really practicing the recovery and mental aspects piece as we're training for the really high intensity movements and high intensity yeah. moments. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And what I uh, what I understand about the medical field and profession is that residency, when you're in the in medical school, is one of the worst. Um, it's kind of like the hell week version of of medical school, right? Because you're you're basically getting no sleep, you're operating on zero, and you're kind of just taxed to the end. That's okay because that's like a version of hell week, okay? Uh, but I think what the medical community would be um, uh, would be better off by understanding is that keep that as a very um, codified, you know, start time, end time assessment selection process, right? But inside of that could be opportunities to train someone on some of this micro recovery stuff. Okay. And, and maybe even during the residency, I mean, I, I didn't really do it during hell week. I mean, well, I remember during hell week, sometimes they'd have us, um, well, I guess you learn pretty quickly. Sometimes they'd say, um, you know, if you got, did well in like a boat race or something say, Hey, okay, go, go over there and you can sit by your boat. Okay. Well, you learn pretty quickly that even though that sitting period might only be like three minutes, you were going to, I mean, if you could fall asleep in three minutes, you would, because that was the time to recover. Just take it right. No one would, would, uh, would give it up. Um, and you just start to learn to maximize those moments. And so that could be more, um, implemented mm -hmm. into, I think residency, residency training, because, because if it's not, then you're just training someone to kick themselves in the ass, you know, consistently. Yeah. We are, we certainly, uh, we train people to be very good. I had amazing training and aspect to, you know, access to absolutely brilliant, focused, devoted doctors who I am deeply grateful for what they taught me. I also learned an enormous amount of bad habits that mm -hmm. now that I've 
you know, been working on my own for years, I'm, I'm sort of are just starting to bubble up to the surface enough where I'm like, Oh, why do I do that? Like, yeah. Yeah. What's, true. what's a, what can I swap that module out for? Like, how do I upgrade this system? Which <laughs> That's right. I think yeah. is one of the underlying, you know, like hypothesis of, of the whole emergency mind project is that like, we can get better at this. There are better ways to do this. We can, you know, we can evolve our, our systems to not just to provide, like we can evolve our systems in a way that not only maintain the high level of medical care we deliver, but actually improve it and improve ourselves as humans as we do it. Oh, I totally agree. And again, I mean, you you guys will will know more about this than me, but I'm sure there's there's studies about the the effectiveness of someone's performance on. I mean, listen, they've already said it. When you have no sleep, it's like drinking what a six pack of beer. I mean, even worse, right? So. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, think about uh, a surgeon who is running on two hours sleep over the last three days. It's like, it's like he or she is operating you on you after coming back from the bar, right? Um, and or pulling an all night bender, right? And that is not encouraging from the patient <laughs> point of view. Uh, we want to know. I'd much it's rather my doctor be well rested, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, so absolutely. anyway, so good. Um, Rich, this has been amazing, man. Th- thank you. I, I think we've, we've just sort of like wandered our way through this like deep and wide wilderness that we're just starting to chart different paths through thinking about these ideas of, of you know, what are attributes and what are optimal performance. And um, I, I really just, I can't stress this enough. Like if you're in this space, especially if you're in this space and you are somebody who's in charge of selection and training in one form or another, you got to read this book. You got to read the attributes. You got to dig into it and really understand. And there's just a billion things we didn't touch on today that, (laughs) that are so like so worth it and so worth learning. Um, I've been, I've been accused of writing a pretty dense book. So uh, yeah, I know there's a lot we didn't uh, touch on, but I would tell the audience if they're interested, um, you know, certainly the book is, it'd be great if they picked that up and read it. The, on the website though, you can go to the website and for free, you can take an assessment tool that we've built that um, you can basically take this assessment on the grid attributes, the drive attributes and the mental acuity attributes and get a score as to where you stand on those attributes. Again, it's a snapshot. So, okay, you know, you know, does this make sense to me type stuff, but, um, but yeah, you can figure out where you stand on this and then, um, and figure out what your own engine looks like. It may give you a little bit more of a clue as to, uh, why and how you behave the way you do. And once we have a clue, then we know how to do better, right? Because if you, if you understand you have a Jeep engine, then you understand, okay, maybe the nitrous oxide pack is not the best thing I can use. Maybe I need to use something else to, to make my engine run faster, right? So, because there's a lot of cool things out there that can help us perform better, but they're not one size fits all. You have to figure out your engine before you start slapping things on it. Amazing. Um, as we as we close out here, uh, do you have anything else that you want to tell people to do differently tomorrow or, or over the next week? And maybe that's it. Maybe that's go take this uh, self assessment and sort of reflect on yourself. But anything else come up for you? Well, I, I, it's it's really it's really reflect uh, introspect more. Uh, we, we're not. I mean, in today's environment, uh, I, I remember. I don't. I'm not sure how old you are. I'm 48, which means when I was, uh, you know, when I was a kid, and we'd go on road trips because we had four kids in the family, so Dad wasn't going to fly us anywhere. We'd take road trips for you know 18, 20 hour road trips, and we'd sit in the car, unseat belted, by the way, which is like crazy to think about. But anyway. There were no Walkmans or anything like that. I remember literally sitting and looking out the window for hours, just thinking, you know, and imagining and just in my in my own head. And um, and I still do that even when I get on an airplane, as long as I'm by a window, I can I can I can think I can introspect. I don't in today's environment, we have these these computers, these, you know, these supercomputers in our pockets. You know, we default to getting entertained 
pretty rapidly, whether it's a, whether it's, you know, whatever, an app or a, or a podcast or whatever. Right. And so I would just recommend people introspect more, you know, get, take some time in your own head to figure out your system, you know, and by the way, some great ideas can come from that time as well. So, um, so introspect more and you can start, you know, you know, deconstructing yourself. It's just a cool thing to do. Hmm. Amazing. Rich, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for, for coming on this podcast. It's a joy to have you. Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, joy being here. And I look forward to having more, more of these conversations. So thank you. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.